The Book Review Podcast has been around for almost 14 years, and we would love to hear your feedback. Let us know what you think by joining our panel at nytimes.com slash thebookreview. Thanks so much. This is the Book Review Podcast. I'm Pamela Paul, and this is our first time announcing our 10 best books of the year live in front of an audience, as well as to our listeners worldwide. Before we start to announce the books and talk about them, I want to introduce my panel here of fellow podcasters. Many of them will be familiar to those of you who listen regularly to the Book Review Podcast, but I'll tell you a little bit more about them. We have... John Williams, who is an editor on the Books Desk. He edits all of our daily critics. He is also a writer for The Times. He writes the Five Qs column and many other things. And he is known for his great website of yore, The Second Pass. John, thanks for being here. Lauren Christensen is what we call a preview editor at the Book Review, one of a full staff, uh, some of whom are here, but not all. Lauren joined us after stints at Vanity Fair and Harper's Bazaar, and she also has a master's from Oxford in Victorian literature. Greg Coles is our senior editor for books. He is also our poetry editor and a longtime veteran of the Book Review. Tina Jordan joined us recently after 28 years as the, the book's headmistress of Entertainment Weekly magazine. <laughs> Emily Aiken, also new to the book review. She is another preview editor on our staff after previous stints as a reporter for the erstwhile Saturday Ideas section of the New York Times and at the New Yorker, an editor there. And Gal Beckerman is the author of When They Come For Us Will Be Gone, The Epic Struggle to Save Soviet Jewry. He is a former opinion editor of The Forward, and he is now a preview editor at The Book Review. Welcome, guys. We are going to announce painfully, one by one, our winners, um, beginning with fiction. And I am going to start with a third novel, The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay. Greg, you want to tell us about it? Sure. Um the Great Believers is an old-fashioned kind of sweeping social novel. It is set in two different time periods. One is the mid-80s in Chicago, um, where it tells the story of the early days of the AIDS crisis there. And it follows a group of gay men in Chicago, um, really at the cusp of big social change um, for uh, gay, gay men in general as, as a marginalized population dealing with this great crisis. And then the second part is um, set in basically present-day Paris, uh, where one of the characters from the Chicago section, a a woman who ends up taking care of a lot of those men, um, is now um, searching down her estranged daughter, who's been involved in a a religious cult and and has now moved to Paris. So that's, um, it's a great book. It's um, written in kind of a sterling, um, almost journalistic, very clear prose. um, And and it's it's very ambitious and almost flawless um, in, in what it pulls off. And that, I think, points to what we mean by best books. So best books... Um, is a uh, is a book that is not only of the moment, but a book that we think transcends the moment. When we choose these books 
and we agonize over this process. It takes us months. We actually begin at the very beginning of the calendar year. Um, we're looking for books that combine not only excellent prose, strength of writing, but great storytelling, the force of the narrative, books that we think will really stand the test of time, whether they're fiction or nonfiction. Um, and it was a pleasure to choose The Great Believers because it's a third novel. Um, now we know first novels are often uh, recognized. Second novels now are with an official prize for them. But third novels, it's very nice to see people <laughs> get recognized mid-career. And our next book on the list is another third novel. Um, it's Washington Black by um, S.E. Adujan. And Emily is going to talk a little bit about that book. Uh, yeah. So Washington Black is a work of historical fiction. It's set in the 1830s, primarily on our side of the globe. It opens in Barbados on a slave plantation. But despite that fact, it is not primarily a book about slavery. It's really an adventure story. Um, and it's narrated by a young boy who is, he begins his life as a field hand on this plantation. But his life is utterly transformed. Within 50 pages, he's literally levitated out of slavery in a hot air balloon. And the novel takes off from there. Um, and it goes to uh, extraordinary places. It goes to the Arctic. It goes underwater. There, there's deep sea diving, all of which has been meticulously researched by Essie Aduchin um, and is just within the realms of possibility. So a rather implausible but historically possible tale um, that's written in a supple, subtle, deeply nuanced prose. Um, it's just, it's a tremendous work of imagination. Um, those of you may have seen that um, Essie Adujan's novel recently won the Giller Prize in Canada for their best novel. And I should say that we picked these books actually almost two months ago. Um, and uh, we sit tight as we watch the sort of fall literary prize season go by and see what else, uh, what other recognition the novels get before um, they are recognized by us as one of our 10 best. The next novel um, is The Perfect Nanny. Um, this is an unusual uh, book in certain ways for us as a best book because it was released early in the year. So we do still look at books um, early in the year. Um, it's one of three books books on our friction uh, best list that is, but this one isn't quite a debut novel, but it was a debut as translated in the United States. So uh, Leila Slimani's um, first novel, Adele, will be out in January in the U.S., but um, this was, and that was her first novel that she wrote, but this is the first one translated here. And it also came out not only early in the year um, in the U.S., but it also was published as a paperback original, um, which means that it didn't have a hardcover release, and sometimes those books don't get quite as much attention. Um, but this one really knocked us out from the beginning. Um, Leila Salmani herself is a really interesting figure. She was considered um, to be the Minister of Culture in France. Um, she's of North African uh, descent. I think she's a, she is an immigrant, French-Moroccan. Um, and Lauren, tell us more about it. Um, I, I love this book so much. I think, you know, when I first looked at, you're looking at the cover, when I first saw it, it you know, it strikes you as this sort of commercial thriller. Um, you know, you don't see the head of the the nanny, and, and I just kind of, you know, you assume a lot of things from just the cover, and when you open it up, it just shocked me with this sort of psychological heft of it. Um, it really dives deep into this story. Uh, it was based on a true story of a Brooklyn mother, I, I believe. She was yeah. a Manhattan mother on the Upper West Side. Many of you probably remember this case, where a I mother... Just litigated. Yes. But, so a uh, mother hired a nanny who ended up murdering the children. I'm not giving any away any spoilers. It's in the first sentence of this book. Um, and so it was based on that story, and it sort of inverts the thriller 
structure because it starts with the climax, right? I mean, you know from the beginning that the nanny has killed the kids and then somehow it gets even more dramatic from there. And I just thought that was such a brilliant construction. Um, I also think that there's so much more than just the kind of emotional urgency of it. It's also um, sort of, it asks really hard questions that I think are so universal, even if you haven't experienced something as horrific as this, um, which are, you know, what if a mother decides that she actually wants to continue having a life at the expense of spending some time with her young children? Um, what are at stakes in the relationship uh, between, you know, the mother and the person she trusts to, you know, with the lives of her kids? Um, and sort of other, you know, outer world concerns of race and class that play into those really personal issues as well. Um, so there's just so much to unpack in it, and it's a lot more than sort of just a, a cheap paperback. <laughs> it it was won also, the Prix Goncourt. Yes, yes, it won the Prix Goncourt, which is France's top literary prize. Um, and in French, it's interesting that it was published in a very different way. Um, the title was Chanson Douce, which is um, Lullaby. Lullaby, yes. yeah. And in England, it had a different title in, in London, too. It, was, it wasn't as commercial a title. Yeah. I can't remember. It's Emily, also a real portrait of mental illness, I mean, that, which is what I found fascinating, having been really struck by the, that news story here in, in New York. You know, you, you want to understand how somebody could have kind of come to do something like this. And it's such a hard task for a novelist to set herself to actually kind of reverse engineer that, which is what the, what the book does. And I think what's fascinating, too, is she doesn't completely answer that question. Mm. I mean, we know this woman has snapped, and there are all sorts of clues about her. She's lonely. She's in debt. And there are hints of, of her capacity for violence. There's an incredible scene that I hope I'm not going to give away too much involving a rotten chicken <laughs> whose carcass is left for the parents to find, um, sort of stripped of every bit of its meat after the mother has thrown away this rotten chicken. The nanny fetches it out of the trash. Um, but that answer, why do people snap and commit these? these, you know, a kind of senseless acts of violence is never completely resolved with to, to the novel's credit, I yes. think. When Slimani came over um, to the States um, after the book came out uh, to do some events here, uh, I talked to her about this, and she was surprised by the fact that American readers were very interested in sort of knowing what her verdict was on the, on the characters and sort of the clear-cut answers. And she said that she thought it was so interesting that um, Americans, now we're going to get into gross generalizations, which always have exceptions, but that we all wanted sort of a very clean answer, much more black and white, and that um, she felt that in other countries, not just France, but that there was a little bit more comfort with that kind of ambiguity. And I think it was dealing with those nuances that was something that that really stood out for us when we were picking this book. All right. Now we get to the two real debuts on our list. I will talk about, let's see, next we'll talk about Asymmetry by Lisa Holiday. John, you want to talk about that? Uh, sure. I think that this is just anecdotally, I think this was, to people I've spoken with, this was the most widely admired novel of the year. Um, it also came out very early in the year, so we had to keep it in mind as we went. Um, it's the story, it, it's kind of a triptych. The first part of the book is about a young woman named Alice who's a 20-something uh, publishing assistant who aspires to be a writer, and she meets uh, in the park one day um, a, a writer about 40 years older than her named Ezra Blazer, and they embark on an affair, uh, a very affectionate, tender affair in which he you know, tells her about writing. She sort of takes care of his needs as he gets older. She brings him his Mylanta, and, um, they, and they watch baseball in bed together. Uh, and it's it's patterned after, as one of our reviews said, there's an unabashed resemblance to Philip Roth and Ezra Blazer, and that's because uh, Halliday has said that she had a brief romantic uh, relationship with Roth. And the middle of the book 
completely departs. It's a first-person story told by an Iraqi-American who's been detained at Heathrow Airport on his way to visit his brother in Kurdistan. And it is essentially a first-person story about him and his family, the the ways in which they suffer in the world and, and a lot of big political issues. And then in the third section, it's a transcript of a radio interview that the, the Philip Roth character gives in which he talks about his craft and the craft of writing fiction. Um, there are a lot of things that I really admire about this book. One is that there are about 500 ways that first section could go wrong <laughs> writing about uh, a May-December romance with someone like Philip Roth. It's incredibly subtle. It's very funny. Their dialogue is very naturalistic. It's not pretentious. Um, she conveys a lot and with a little. Uh, and the pieces don't fit together explicitly. And I, I think for for the very small minority of readers I know who didn't greatly enjoy this book, it was because they thought, well, what is the, why are these three things all in the same book? And I, she leaves it up to you, I think, to connect those dots a little bit. Um, I really care much more about the writing than the narrative structure of most books. So that it just won me over completely on the level of the prose. It's interesting. That's one of those books that, that surprised us as editors at the book review, because we were all aware of this book. It won a Whiting, the author won a Whiting award. Um, and uh, we all knew it was coming and we all knew that it was coming as sort of the book by the woman who had an affair with Philip Roth. Um, and therefore our expectations were sort of on the low end, <laughs> but, uh, but it won over many, uh, many fans at the book review. Greg, you were also a fan of, of- I, I really loved this book and um i i did care about the structure a little bit and i thought that the first part the philip roth part was much more successful as fiction as kind of entering the dream than the second part was but i also thought that played into this idea of asymmetry and it's an idea that she plays with throughout the book um there's personal asymmetry he's the established writer and she's the aspiring writer and then there's political asymmetry with uh, america and and the wars in the middle east and then there's this asymmetry itself in the book. So she's kind of enacting the stuff that she's writing about. And I was, I was very impressed with how she pulled that off. Yeah, no, me too. Yeah. All right, our oh. final debut. <laughs> oh, I wanted Tina. to throw something in, which was that, so it was the subject of a huge auction. Like everybody in town wanted to buy this novel when it went on the block because they'd all, her reputation was so fabulous. And it's interesting for us as editors because we watch those auctions happen and then, Six months or a year later, when we get the galley, you know, often we're disappointed, right? I mean, but here was a case where it lived up and more. Like, it was so great to, you know. To see that a book this good got the the attention that it deserved. Yeah, that everybody realized it at the outset. And that, you know, when when it was finally in our hands, we're like. And and even though you have the kind of Philip Roth bit in the back of your head as you're reading, it really transcends that, I think. Can I jump in just one more point? (laughs) I told you it was widely admired. uh, The the three sections of the book are very different and are not explicitly connected. But one of the pleasures, if you enjoy the sort of really close reading and thinking at sort of the meta level, um, she drops in little clues about how these pieces connect so that the young woman who's having the affair with Philip Roth wants to be a writer and she's very anxious about whether she has the kind of moral vision, the ability to write a novel about the important things and she sort of tells Ezra Blazer, you know, but what about world affairs and politics and aren't those the important things? You know, what what do I have to say? And of course the second half of the novel is about someone who is literally in the throes of global um, geopolitics He's stuck in Heathrow due to due to a war uh, happening in his home country of Iraq. 
Um, and, so, and the third the third section as well, interspersed in this sort of light-hearted radio interview, Ezra Blazer drops little comments about the novel and how sometimes you have to let characters just do what they're going to do, and they may just pass each other and not interact. Anyway, so it's really fun to kind of connect those threads. It's just, this is a brilliantly constructed There's novel. There's something almost musical about the construction of it. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's true. The little echoes back and forth. All right. Our final of the on the fiction list is There There by Tommy Orange. Tina, you want to tell us about that? Yes. On a very on a very simple like one sentence level, this novel is about a group of Native Americans who are all traveling to a big powwow at the Oakland Coliseum. And it actually opens with this remarkable nonfiction essay. Uh, Orange is of Cheyenne and Arapaho descent, and he's making the case in this really, I mean, searing, white-hot prologue um, that all the ideas that, you know, the stereotypes that most Americans have about indigenous peoples, about Native Americans, are wrong. And he's talking about how, in fact, you know, they live in cities, and he says, um, I, had to, I had to write this line down because it was so beautiful. It said, um, we know the sound of the freeway better than we do rivers, the howl of distant trains better than wolf howls. We know the smell of gas and freshly wet concrete better than we do the smell of cedar and sage. Um, anyway, I, I, I've had people just read that intro who haven't had time, you know, to sit down and read the whole book. I know, yeah. Gal, you were also a huge fan, right? Yeah, no, and, and you know, then the, then the book moves on, right. and it's kind of this like kind of polyvocal portrait of um, you know in American uh, Native Americans living in in Oakland. Short um, chapters, from short chapters, of view, right. right? And and again, you know, we talked about like kind of what 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 we mark you know as as a, as a best book and often it's a book that like you know you see the difficulty level is is high for me a book that tries to kind of tell the story of a community i'm like oh okay <laughs> let's see what happens here and that's really what he was trying to do but i think he really pulled it off you know you you move from chapter to chapter and you really feel the the individuals behind each of these voices and he's doing a lot of kind of fictional pyrotechnic type things that also can go really wrong, you know, moving from third person to first person, then right. back to third person. I think he does it one chapter and second person, you know, but, um, but I thought, I thought it worked really well as giving kind of a, a sense of how these characters are trying to kind of pull out the strand of their identity that is still native American and understand what that means for them in contemporary life. Right. Um, at the risk of being boring, I'm going to read one more line out loud, which was, there's a, one of the chapters is by a man who has a uh, Native American father and a white mother, and he's he's describing how hard it is to coexist, sort of half and half in those worlds. And he, he says, "You were white, you were brown, you were red, you were dark, you were both, and you were neither." It's just stunning writing. There's nothing boring about that. No. <laughs> All right, so drum roll: our five fiction winners once again are The Perfect Nanny by Leila Slimani, Lisa Holliday's Symmetry, There There by Tommy Orange, Washington Black by Essie Adujan, and The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay.
just so you know, the, the ton best wasn't always the ton best. It used to actually just be a random arbitrary number for a long time of which books. It could be six books. It could be 12 books. And uh, when Sam Tannenhaus became the editor, he made it into a neat 10. Even then, we sometimes uh, had an uneven number between fiction and nonfiction. I have to say we're often tempted to go back to that because we're so eager to sneak in, like just one more fiction or maybe one more nonfiction. Um, and so at the end of this, our conversation about our actual 10 best, we'll talk about some of the books that almost made it or that we, some of us were deep partisans of and wanted very much. Uh, so we wanted to honor those books as well. But before we get into the, the sort of personal runners-ups, um, the nonfiction winners, let's start with our first book, which is Shane Bowers' American Prison, A Reporter's Undercover Journey into the Business of Punishment. Emily, you want to start? Um, sure. So American Prison is really a remarkable feat of investigative reporting. Shane Bauer is a name uh, many of you might know. He um, probably first came to public attention when he was arrested with two friends for trespassing into Iranian soil and spent two years in an Iranian jail. And upon returning to the United States after he was released, he, um, as a reporter for Mother Jones, um, hired himself to, to work as a corrections officer in a private prison. He decided to go undercover, sort of, although he worked under his own name. Um, he wanted to um, learn about the private prison industry in this country, which is substantial, something like 8% of American inmates are uh, held in prisons that are privately run. And um, he was hired, uh, as I say, with very little due diligence. They didn't figure out he was a reporter. And he went undercover, armed with all sorts of equipment to sort of record and, um, and, and photograph his experience there. And his stint lasted four months before he was sort of caught. His identity was revealed. Um, but that was plenty. Um, he was working at a private prison in rural Louisiana, and what he saw was shocking. Um, very little training going in also. Right. Extremely, extremely poor training, very low morale, very low pay, medical negligence, um, just violence, incompetence. Bloodhounds were used on inmates. Um, there was a suicide that he uh, was present at the prison when it happened. Um, and all of this he wrote up initially in an article for Mother Jones that won a National Magazine Award. And he's expanded um, that, that article into a book and added um, some of the most disturbing details, actually the historical research that he he did for the book, where he uncovers the model for the private prison industry dates to the South after the Civil War, when um, a majority black inmates were sort of farmed out to plantations to pick cotton in a form of slave labor. This is, was a practice known as convict leasing, and um, they were they uh, this allowed the South to remain competitive with the industrial North. Um, basically, they had a kind of captive workforce. I think the biggest um, cotton mill in Texas at one point was in a prison in Texas. Um, so it's, it's a very disturbing expose, very powerful reporting. I mean, one of the achievements of this book is something that's hard to pull off, which is so many books begin as articles, as uh, magazine articles or newspaper stories, and don't ever really transcend that kind of 
form. You, so you sort of feel like you're getting an expanded article or it should have stayed in that that format. And I think this is an example of, of a book that really manages to make a case for the book itself and to really offer more context and depth so that it, it stands on its own. Yeah. And I was going to say, I found this book so searing and so shocking. I actually went back to a book that was a huge hit 25 years ago called New Jack. Do you remember that? Yeah, Someone trained uh, to the work Ted at Conover. The Ted Conover. He was well compensated. He was well trained. I mean, it could not have been the more starker, opposite. The difference is right. Yeah. He did not yeah. work at a private prison. No, Ted he Conover. didn't. Yeah. But you know, I mean, just the it was it, you know. The um, Shane Bauer too is a book that um, fans of Jasmine Ward's Sing Unburied Sing might turn to for background because there's a lot of the um, over. That's also that's Louisiana prison, um, and it, it gives kind of the nonfiction version of, of the prison stuff in her story. One of the hardest things about choosing our five best nonfiction is that there are so many different kinds of books to cover, from investigative reporting to finance and economics to science to memoir. It's to history and biography. It's just so many different options. It's very, very tough to narrow down. And the next book on our list, I think, is one that occupies several categories. Um, it's uh, the Michael Pollan, um, How to Change Your Mind. And um, this book, you could say, is a science book, um, but it's also a history of uh, the psychedelics in this country and um, the culture around it. And it's also really a book about the brain and and I think, frankly, just a book about what it means to be human. This was a, a book that um, the publisher actually held a lunch for the media, as they occasionally do. And at this media lunch, which was uh, filled with uh, reporters and uh, jaded media types and editors at book reviews like ours, um, everyone was sort of transfixed and just listened as Michael Pollan told a story about how in order to report this book on psychedelics, he needed, he felt, to take psychedelics himself. And he had not uh, ever taken LSD. Um, he had not taken, he ended up, I think, trying five or four or five different uh, psychedelics himself. And at the end of the conversation, the first question that uh, someone asked was, um, can you tell us a little bit more about the underground networks through which you obtained <laughs> these drugs? And it was like they had articulated what everyone else in the room was thinking. And we kept him there, I think, for you know another hour asking him questions. They didn't hand it out at the questions. lunch. That wasn't part. That <laughs> yes. wasn't part of the lunch. Um, you know, and Michael Pollan is is uh, is no newcomer to uh, to nonfiction. He's obviously a huge best-selling writer. He writes for the New York Times Magazine and many other places. And uh, this piece, I think, rose out of a piece for the New Yorker. Um, but we all felt that this book, in a way, and Emily, maybe you could talk about this after too. It's it's almost as if his writing achieved, like went to another level. After he, I'm not going to necessarily attribute it to the drugs, um, but it 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 you know we all love what he did in books like The Botany of Desire and all of his books on on sort of how and why we should eat certain foods. Um, this book, I it it almost seemed like he was transformed by the writing. And I have to say, as, as someone who came to this book with a completely closed mind about psychedelics, um, and for the record, I've not <laughs> ever taken acid. I, I walked I away feeling almost evangelical as, as other editors on this, uh, on, on the stage here know well. Um, I, I think what's, what's like for me, the most interesting part of the book is when he gets into this kind of spiritual 
notion of what psychedelics actually do, which is they strips away kind of the ego part of our brains and allows us to reconnect with a kind of a childlike, you know, uh, approach to the world. And, um, and, and he, he's trying to understand kind of what that means for how we can like be happy, <laughs> happier and live as kind of conscious people. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know about the writing uh, being transformed, but I think he was somewhat transformed <laughs> yeah. and says that in the book. I mean, he admits early on in the book that he's a, he's a very square guy yeah. and he's very convincing about that. And um, he says that he's not a very spiritual guy, that he doesn't do a lot of self-reflection. Um, and what he and a lot of other people in the book who he talks to who have taken LSD really talk about is the way in which after the trip it's not really like the grooviness of looking at all the colors and this and that but they want to almost maintain this sense of perspective that they got while they were gone right and they want to apply it to their it's almost like therapy Mm -hmm. and 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 his big argument in the book it is a lot of everything science memoir history um but if there's an argument to it it's that he's saying that science is only now kind of getting back to the job of trying to Mm -hmm. rescue the use of lsd as a possible therapeutic practice and and to get it back from what he calls the countercultural baggage because yeah, what th- happened is Timothy Leary and everyone in the 60s it just got associated with this zany sort of escapist culture and he's saying that even back then scientists were starting to think about how it might help people and the- there's a lot that's convincing about how it helps PTSD and people yeah. who are you know having terminal illness at the end of their lives and yeah. yeah and one of the things i loved about it is it is so much more than just science and medicine i mean it he and it goes back way before Ken Kesey, I mean, he, your hero, William James, figures really prominently in this. I mean, it, it, you know, Aldous Huxley. And so there's like there's literary implications and, um, you know, Steve Jobs took it. I mean, so there's, you know, it's really big in the tech community and sort of uh, that how the dissolution of the ego pervades just, you know, sort of medical questions and, and um yeah, it was just a... All right, speaking of Steve Jobs, um, our third book uh, is Lisa Brennan Jobs' memoir, Small Fry. Um, this was a book, again, that I think took us all by surprise. We all knew it was coming, and we knew it was coming um, with the line that I think most people thought about this book as um, the memoir by Steve Jobs' daughter. And I think that all of us uh, found that it was so much more than that. Tina, you want to tell us about Reading small fry. I do. And it, it, my, my favorite line, again, I'm sorry to do this, will sort of encapsulate it. She says of her father, for him, I was the blot on a spectacular ascent. And, you know, at the beginning of the book, she's his oldest, she's his oldest child, by the way. He, her mother has, is suing for child support and because he's denied paternity. He's forced to take a paternity test. You know, it's proven that he's the father. She, his, her mother wins $500 a month in support. Meanwhile, Apple is about to go, am I getting this language right, go public, Emily? Yes. And, and like the day after the agreement, and he knew this was coming, he was worth $220 million all of a sudden. But people know nothing about money. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I was, was going to anyway. say with Apple, I don't think it was go public, it was go interstellar. That was the- what? Go interstellar. Anyway, so her story, and it's her story. It's not her father's story. I think a lot of people have come to this book thinking that it's going to be more about Steve Jobs. It's not. It's about the neglect and abuse, indeed, that she suffered at the hands of her father. But more than that, it's a book about how our parents shape us. 
Yes, I, I guess I too, I think we were all struck by the pros. Um, and I, I will say there was a lot of skepticism, not just in the office, but among even potential reviewers who said, oh, this had to be ghost written. She's Mona yeah. Simpson's niece. Right. <laughs> or, or, you know, settling. And, and I know Lisa herself has said, I believe on our podcast, that this was not the book she wanted to write as a first book. She, she really did not want to write the story of her life and her father. Anything but that, she said. Something Something like to that effect. She said, it's the book I needed to write to get it out of the way, which I thought was such a beautiful description for she why, was, why she couldn't writes. avoid writing this yeah. book. Yeah. Um, and I think that when you read it, you will see how vindicated she is. She yeah. really is a writer. This is a book that works on the kind of accretion of granular detail. There's just, it's an assembly of vignettes and scenes that are painted with just such vivid and subtle. Um, detail that it's extraordinary. I'm thinking of one scene, she's driving with her mother through the rain and her mother's really losing it. Her mother is an impoverished single parent and a struggling artist in a beat up car. One of the windshield wipers doesn't work very well. There's a pit where a stone has hit the windshield and Lisa's taking all of this in in the front seat next to her mother. Her mother begins to to wail and scream and beat her fists on the steering wheel in the driving rain. And Lisa is four. (laughs) And I think she discussed this scene on our podcast and she says she remembers it vividly and you know, know, she was four. Um, You're with her. You believe her. The the accretion of detail is just extraordinary. I want to hear a little more from Lauren because I think she's the one who joked at one point during this process in the office. She said, can all five nonfiction books be small fry? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it just goes back to what Pamela was saying about, uh, and, and Gall too, about sort of the criteria that goes into the, to this, you know, this decision, which is, you know, the the merit and the difficulty of, of you know, the, the task that they set out for, these authors set out for themselves. And I think, you know, we all have read and seen and just heard about this ultra narrative of Steve Jobs. You know, this is not a person we don't come into the book without preconceptions. And um, for this debut, very young author to come in and sort of topple, I think, this narrative by heavyweights like Walter Isaacson and was it Sorkin who did the movie? I mean, you know, these, these big names who are telling this story and feeding us this story of Steve Jobs and no one doubts his genius and his contribution to contemporary life. But, you know, there's a, there's another narrative that's really important. And, and, you know, if you want to get the story of, of the whole person, I think that, you know, it really meaningfully informs sort of history and just, you know, your understanding of, you know, human interaction. And it's, it's just, it was a stunner to me. And Lauren, you also made the point that it's as much about her mother and Absolutely. about the between mother and it's daughter. It's a mother-daughter story as well. Um, All right. Our next uh, nonfiction winner is another memoir, another debut. This was one that uh, we agreed on, I think, very early on. There was a lot of consensus around Tara Westover's Educated. Uh, John, you want to start a little bit on that book? Uh, Yeah, I'll start. Um, It... This is just one of those books where the the story itself is so incredible that uh, she's a great writer and she's also really good at granular detail and scenes like Emily was saying about uh, Lisa Brennan Jobs. But just this story, and I'll let others fill in more of the details of going basically from living with a, you know, a separatist father who believes that, you know, society is poisonous and being raised in this almost medieval way and being illiterate for a very long time and then eventually becoming, I forgot where she got her PhD from, but she's Cambridge, yeah, from right. Cambridge, um, is just just the outline of it. It's, it. Even if this was only passably written, it would be an incredible book to read, but it's really, it's better than that. 
Yeah, I feel like it would be, it's people hearing about this book sometimes very are quick to lump it into what I call the misery memoir category, but it's anything but. And she was, in, she was entirely self-taught. Being homeschooled for their family meant that the mom would send them down in the basement and they would just turn the pages of books. Doing 50 pages of math meant opening the math book and just turning 50 pages. And her... Whatever it was in her that made her want more and made her want to learn and to educate herself. I mean, she, you know, this is somebody who never went to high school. She had to study for the college entrance exams on her own. I felt like her relentless curiosity and sort of pursuit of self-knowledge pervades the book itself in that she not only wrote her own story, but then she she had a number of siblings, um, some of whom she's not on good terms with, others whom she is, um, for that become the reasons become obvious um, in the telling of the story. But she goes back and asks them about their memories of certain experiences and sort of checks her against herself against their accounts, which I thought was an interesting and brave thing to do in a memoir. I would urge people to go back to the original podcast that she appeared on when the book came out because that was a really great conversation you had with her where she talked about that and a lot of other things that really showed her like the depth and range of her emotional intelligence. Yeah, and one of the, also the things that's interesting is, so having basically educated herself, she's not widely read in memoirs. Do you know how when you sometimes read a memoir, you have the sense that somebody has, you know, been reading from Mary Carr on, <laughs> but her her voice is just so original. It's this isn't constructed like a regular memoir. All right, I'm going to, without further ado, go to our last book on the list, which is David W. Blight's Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, a monumental biography that was just recently published. Um, Gal, you want to start? Yeah, sure. So Blight is a Yale professor whose whose expertise is the abolition movement. Um, And here again, it's a different kind of difficulty level in that Frederick Douglass himself has written so much about his, wrote so much about his own life. Three memoirs. what was that? Three autobiographies. Three autobiographies, yes. um, like nearly a thousand pages, I think, about his own life. And so how do you approach the story of Frederick Douglass and bring freshness to it? So Blight had access to archives that weren't really used before, a private collection that he was able to get his hands on. Um, and what he does with, the, with, with that material is really deepen the story in two ways. Um, first, you get the personal life of Frederick Douglass, which is kind of underneath the surface of the of the memoirs. It doesn't really break through, uh, you know, for example, the story of his lovers, the story of his um, of his second wife, a woman who was white. Um, it's kind of a, an unusual circumstance, you know, in the, in the late 19th century. Um, so you get really a, a story of his household in Rochester and, and this kind of strange arrangements and the, the chaos that surrounded it. Uh, and also you get his later life, once he'd also become truly a celebrity in America. Um, and a sense, I think, and this came through in our review of the book, of just his, his natural charisma, mm-hmm. just a man who, uh, who, who really was able to kind of claim an audience when he, when he, when he stood in front of people. Um, and, uh, and I think that it all just comes through in a, in, a, in a really kind of magisterial way in this book. It's also, you know, he's one of those figures that we think we all know right. what we need to know about, you know, in terms of his career as an abolitionist and his speeches and his own writing. And what Blight makes clear by contextualizing it in the history of the time is just how exceptional every step of his life was from the circumstances of his own slavery. And he really gets into detail that um, that I found fascinating, his uh, 
the fact that when he was a slave in Baltimore, that he lived among free men, which is not our conception of how slaves were housed and how their daily they went about their daily lives and the circumstances of his escape and the way in which he was able to rise from prominence from absolutely nothing almost every step of the way his life was marked by things that were exceptions to the the history at the, at the at that moment and his role i mean also just the influence that he had over american society at the time which seems unusual to to read about now you know to think that abraham lincoln called him to the white house to kind of help him deal with issues surrounding the civil yeah. war it's it's yeah it's almost like it reminded me of ron chernow's um, hamilton in that way and right. that sort of we've been saying lin manuel miranda needs to get this book that's right <laughs> <laughs> all right you've heard it here first okay our five nonfiction winners just to go over them quickly again American Prison, A Reporter's Undercover Journey into the Business of Punishment by Shane Bauer, Educated, a Memoir by Tara Westover, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom by David W. Blight, How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence by Michael Pollan, and Small Fry by Lisa Brennan Jobs. Okay, and now to talk a little bit about some of those that didn't make our list but that we truly loved. I'm going to start with Lauren. Okay. My, one of my favorite books of the year uh, was actually a debut short story collection called Friday Black by Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. Um, it, they're satirical stories, so they're, you know, there's humor in them, but they're really all about violence and violence in America and of really two kinds, um, racially motivated violence and the violence of consumerism, which, you know, obviously there's, there are breaks between each story, but you really can't help but draw the connections between, you know, obviously Friday Black is an inversion of Black Friday. Um, so the consumerism as well as, you know, race, racial violence. Um, I think, you know, we were all really taken with one of the stories called the Finkelstein Five, um, in which the narrator, um, he, so the backdrop of the story is um, this: a white man is on trial for murdering five black children with a chainsaw, um, and so it's it's really sort of hyperbolic violence. Um, but the references are undeniable and really obvious, um, just to, to real life. And you know, I, I won't give away what happens. But so that's so that's in the back. That's in the backstory. And the narrator, who is a black man, is witnessing all this and has to deal with you know sort of his community. Um, grappling with the stakes of this trial. Um, at the same time, you know, he's going about his daily life interviewing for jobs and he dials up and down his capital B blackness on a scale of one to 10. So, you know, he'll say in, in this interview, he's, you know, lower down on the scale. And, you know, when he's experiencing frustration and rage, he's much higher up on the scale. And it's just such a brilliant narrative device because as a reader, you know, you obviously don't have an image of him, but the image in your head, can't, you can't help but change your image in your head when you get, you know, from number to number. And it just makes you sort of examine your own conscious or unconscious biases. And I just think as a, as a narrative tool, it was such a powerful book for me. Um, it's rough around the edges. Um, it just, you know, it's, it's not a perfect book, but, you know, I think that, that had to have been intentional. I think the subject matter is so messy and ugly that, you know, it, it's impossible to, to tie up with a neat bow. And I just thought that was next, just an excellent. All right. Um, it's, we should say it's written by a 27-year-old yes, debut right. author, and so that's understandable. Um, one of the great pleasures of working with Tina Jordan is her enthusiasm when she loves a book. She can also be extremely critical and judgmental, too. <laughs> yes, um, but when she loves a book, she comes in um, raving about it. And uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about Rachel Slade? So Rachel Slade's book 
Into the Raging Sea is the kind of narrative nonfiction that I love. It's what we in the journalism world call a TikTok. It's a story that just goes moment by moment and takes you through a disaster. The disaster in this case is the sinking of a cargo ship during Hurricane Joaquin in 2015. And What Slade did to reconstruct this disaster moment by moment was she had the black box. She transcribed the black box. She had text messages and email messages, you know, that that members of the crew were sending to their friends and family. You know, she had taped phone messages that they had left on people's phones and answering machines. It's, It's almost as if... It ushered in a new way to do this kind of nonfiction. You made made me realize that the very idea of what's considered a primary source in nonfiction has changed in this day and age. Um, you know, when you read a book like Sebastian Younger's The Perfect Storm, obviously, you know, a lot of that is imagined, that dialogue. But in this book, it's all real. Um, and I just couldn't put it down. All right, for something that a book that is kind of unreal in all respects, Emily, can you tell us about um, your one of your runners up? This was a book that we were talking about for months. There were a lot of such so many good books this year, but I wanted to talk about My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Otessa Moshbag because I, I don't think anyone here would disagree. It was the book that provoked the most conversation, the most heated conversation in the office. There was a lot of disagreement about what this book was trying to do and how well it succeeded. Um, I, <laughs> it was a very interesting experience reading this book. Um, Otessa Moshbag, I believe, has published, this is, I think, her third novel. Um, all of her books, all three of them, are, are provocative. Um, it's, her characters tend to have unattractive traits. Um, she tends to foreground bodily functions and disgusting things. And um, this book was a very unpleasant read for me, I have to confess. <laughs> um, and I found it very interesting because the prose struck me aesthetically as very, very beautiful and controlled and very deliberate. Um, and what I think she was up to in this book, very quickly to sketch it, it's about an unnamed, young, beautiful female prota- protagonist, a college graduate, whose parents have died um, and left her enough money to live on Um, Her ambition is sapped. She can't feel any sadness for her parents. She doesn't feel much of anything. She says, I feel nothing. Um, Her parents weren't attractive people. She's not an attractive person. She has has one friend whom she belittles and disparages behind her back, a boyfriend that sort of uses her and and has really basically dumped her. Um, not, Not a very attractive person. Um, and, and she's decided that the way to address her sort of spiritual apathy is to sleep for a year. What would, what would happen if she could just hibernate? And she finds a psychiatrist who is one of the great satirical psychiatrists in contemporary literature, a hilarious, uh, bad, hilariously terrible psychiatrist <laughs> who plies her with all kinds of medications and says things like, how are you feeling? Oh, well, I'm, I'm thinking. I think I'm overthinking. Oh, that's not good. That, that could lead to psychosis. You need some, and we'll hand her another prescription. Um, and, and 
soon this woman is sleeping. Um, basically, through the novel, she sleeps. And that's a very interesting thing, right? It's very boring to, to think about reading a novel about a woman who's asleep. But all kinds of things happen when she's asleep. She wakes up every once in a while and discovers she's been to Saks Fifth Avenue and bought a fur coat. Or, you know, she's eaten, you know, three takeout containers of Chinese food or what, rented three movies. Um, so a lot's going on while she's asleep. And um, not to drone on too long, um, I... It, I I'm very struck by this book. I think it was a very original, really allegorical book um, about um, the kind of anesthetized state of our society and consumer culture, to sound very pretentious. Um, and, you know, others may chime in and disagree, but it was an original and heady read for me. All right. I want to get everyone, uh, give everyone a chance to talk up at least one favorite. Um, Gal, can you tell us about Rise and Kill First? Sure. So uh, this is a book by Ronen Bergman, who's an Israeli journalist, uh, whose the book is written in English. Um, and he basically wanted to tell the entire story of Israel's use of um, kind of assassination as as a method of kind of security. Uh, and he goes back to the birth of, of the state of Israel and tracks it all the way until today. Um, and and it, it's, it's, an interest, it's an interesting narrative because it, there's no kind of like, through, the only through line is this method of deciding that you need to kind of take down your enemy before he's able to take you down. And, and you know, there is kind of a, a sense of justification about this as far as the Israeli state is concerned because there is always a sense of kind of existential crisis that there are enemies who want to destroy us. And so we need to destroy them first. But um, what's interesting that happens as you kind of move through the narrative and get to, to today is that, you know, the, the ability to do these sorts of assassinations with like drones, you know, becomes so much easier that the balance, the kind of moral balance starts to tip. And, and, you know, without kind of a too heavy a hand, Bergman kind of forces us to ask questions about, you know, when you can do that, when you can kill so easily, you know, what kind of, does it become ultimately counterproductive? Are you creating more terror? I think one of the things that was so impressive about this this book was the extent of the reporting and the number of people he spoke to. And my favorite line is uh, when he calls up someone uh, within the the security forces um, or the intelligence in Israel and he, the person basically says to him, I hate you and I hate whoever gave you my phone number and sort of (laughs) hangs this up on him. Um, So he's a tenacious reporter. Um, John, tell us about, you had two here very quickly. I'll go quickly, the lightning round. Um, My my fiction pick is uh, Sigrid Nunez's The Friend, which won the National Book Award a couple of weeks ago, and which I revisited this week, uh, I read a while back, and, and which I liked even more, kind of flipping through it the second time. Uh, it's it's the story of a woman who inherits a great Dane from a friend of hers, a, uh, a writer friend of hers who's committed suicide, and... It's a very aphoristic book. It draws on a lot of old stories about other writers and their thoughts about living and and friendship and writing. It's very explicitly about writing and the art of writing. It's also very explicitly about how to live and whether or not to live. And uh, But it also just wears its profundity very lightly. And it's a, a fairly small book. And I would highly recommend uh, the probably get through it in a couple of hours a um, not small book the nonfiction book i have i have not finished uh and may never it's about eight thousand pages long and it's called um and it's about the 15th century all this sounds like the opposite of accessible but it's um i hate the word readable because uh you know they're words so it's like people call a beer drinkable you know i would hope it's a liquid so it's of course but um it does apply in this case because it's a book about martin luther and erasmus and they're two philosophies during the renaissance and and um 
basically Christian humanism versus Christian evangelicalism and how those two, they really started us down that forked path and how Erasmus has kind of, the humanist part, has kind of fallen by the wayside and, and Luther has been victorious. He, Michael Massing, the author, is a journalist and it's just very well-chosen details. It reads just beautifully and these you, you can kind of move through it chapter by chapter in a way that feels very doable, even though sitting on your desk it looks impossible. All right, for those who want to do that, the title is... Fatal Discord Okay. by Michael Massey. All right, Greg, you have uh, two also on your list. Yeah, one fiction, one non, and I'll also be quick. Um, the novel that um, has really stuck with me in a way that I, I didn't initially anticipate was The Overstory by Richard Powers. Uh, Powers often writes about scientist uh, characters, and he does again in this book. One of the main characters is a dendrologist who studies neural networks, and she discovers that um, trees communicate through the roots, and in fact, they really do. Um, but it's it's a much bigger book than that. And over the course of the book, I talked in um, about asymmetry, how I, I like structure um, and architecture and novels. And this is a book that is really about the trees themselves. There's a, a Vietnam vet character and a group of um, eco-terrorists who all come together with the scientists to try to save a stand of old trees in the Pacific Northwest. And um, the, it, it's a book that in focusing on these trees, it takes you outside of the human time scale and into a, a bigger time scale than we're used to thinking about um, in our lives, certainly in fiction. Um, and it's a book that um, during the California wildfires, I, I really couldn't get out of my mind um, in, in terms of how we treat the natural world um, and, and how important it is to us that um, you know we're so focused on kind of our intimate personal lives, but there's this bigger thing beyond us that he really captures in a way that um, that I admired very much. Um, and, and he's a beautiful writer, um, and, and it's a, a book that balances the human and the natural. And then in um, nonfiction, a book that has overlaps in some ways with Small Fry. Um, it's a memoir, uh, again, very intimate about a relationship with a mother, is the book Heavy um, by a guy named Kiese Lehman, who um, it's his first memoir, but I think his third book. He's done an essay collection and and a novel, and um, it is um, he grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, with a mother who was very demanding. He's, he's black, um, growing up in Mississippi, and she was very demanding at um, trying to get him to succeed and study. She would give him um, extracurricular school assignments, papers, um, reading assignments. And, um, I mean, she, she was demanding to the point of abuse. She, she would really beat him and then hide the beatings um, so that it, it wouldn't reflect badly on the family. Um, and he did succeed, and he, he loves his mother a lot, but there's a lot. Uh, it's a very fraught relationship, um, and it takes place against this backdrop of racism and gambling and eating and sex. And, um, you know, there, there's just a lot going on there, and it's a very wide-eyed, I mean, clear-eyed, um, unflinching um, portrait that I, I just really recommend. Pamela, what about you? All right, I will end with two books that I think um, we sometimes don't recognize enough because they are pleasurable to read, um, both of them. One fiction, one nonfiction. Um, the fiction is Tana French's The Witch Elm, uh, which Tana French is just such an amazing writer, and this is a standalone novel, not one of her Dublin uh, murder squad mysteries. But one that, and I, it's hard to talk about it without revealing anything about the plot, but I will say this, when you do get 
to the end and you know who did what and why. It's a book that really is actually very much about our current moment um, in ways that are surprising and I found um, different for French. Um, and so, uh, and also just a lot of fun to read. And then in that same vein, David Sedaris's Calypso. Uh, we were all such fans here of that book. Everyone, uh, you know, knows David Sedaris and he makes uh, writing that is easy to read look easy to write. And I don't think that it is. I think that his writing, I think, reflects a kind of constant fine tuning of his craft. And this book, I thought, um, I mean, all his books are great, but I found this one to be especially moving and touching. I thought he went deeper and looked at some of the things that he touched, perhaps on a more lightly humorous level in previous work he went back to and kind of examined and and, and looked at more deeply. Um, so those were two that uh, I enjoyed reading. Um, and uh, But with that, I think we should, uh, we'll end our live portion of the book review podcast. Thank you to all of my panelists. It's such a pleasure to work with such talented and eloquent editors and writers here at the book review. Gal Beckerman, Emily Aiken, Tina Jordan, Greg Coles, Lauren Christensen, and John Williams. Thank you all so much. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back, albeit not right away. The Book Review Podcast is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with the great help of my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Pamela Paul.